Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a while. This is Dr. Luke Johnson, and Dr. Jonathan Cook is joining me today to discuss some Jack London. We're going to be talking about Jack London's The Iron Heel. Initially, we were going to talk about the Star Rover, the jacket, which I really, really enjoyed, but Dr. Cook made a change here, and I'm glad he did. And I was just telling him before we went on air that I keep a running tally of my favorite books uh, of the year. And right now, the number one and number three spots are held by Jack London, uh, the jacket and then uh, the Iron Heel. But I quite enjoyed the Iron Heel, even though I'm giving it currently the ranking of third. What, what made you uh, want to talk about uh, the Iron Heel rather than the jacket, Dr. Cook? Uh, so, um, Iron Heel is a great, you know, dystopian novel that had uh, some influence on Orwell and 1984 and um, really said some interesting things about America at the beginning of the 20th century and the, the, the huge concentration of wealth that was occurring at the time uh, that, that really reached a peak before the beginning of reform under Roosevelt, you know, when the trust started getting broken up. So we're kind of duplicating that era now in the U.S. I mean, this massive concentration of wealth and, and the power of oligarchy. You know, he, London talked about the oligarchy is the ruling power. The Iron Heel is the nickname of the oligarchy. So when you talk about oligarchies, you think, well, you know, Russia, the oligarchs, very topical today, you know, for the last 20, 20 years. Russia has been um, heavily influenced, not ruled necessarily, but uh, dominated by these extremely wealthy men. Uh, but also, you could consider the the, the so-called robber barons, the you know the inf incredibly wealthy individuals of the late 19th, early 20th century, you know, the Carnegies, Rockefellers, um, uh, you know, Gould, and uh, in California, uh, the um, you know the great wealth of you know Stanford and. Uh, you know, the creators of the of the whole <clears throat> oligarchy in California are what London knew best because that's where he lived. Um, but the um, um, the fact is that, you know, this book sort of provides a, a spooky blueprint about how, you know, fascism comes to America, which is something we all need to be aware of today. But you know, the fact that these super uh, powerful industrialists, you know, eventually they say, hey, you know, we just don't, we don't want to not only be rich, but we want to control the government. So they form this kind of oligarchy, so-called, and dominate the country and become kind of a de facto totalitarian element that, that rules in America and since the narrative is set up to be telling the story, you know, 700 years in the future, it's looking back on the struggle between socialism and oligarchy that resulted in the, 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 the domination of the oligarchy for 300 years. And then for the last 400 years, they've had 
the brother, so-called B-O-M, brotherhood of man. Of man. So, yeah. anyway, you know, the, my, my, my chief reason is just the suggestiveness it has for our situation today, which is always a good reason to reread re something. Yeah, it seems to be uh, <laughs> perpetually tapped into cycles of history. Uh, you were thinking about it in terms of its relevance for today. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I was telling Dr. Cook before we went on the air, I had a rather ill-conceived understanding of who Jack London was. I, I really hadn't a lot of people ringing the bell saying, hey, you got to ring this guy before Dr. Cook brought it to my attention. And the reason why I enjoyed both of these uh, novels so much is how much they dip into the sci-fi. I guess I'm more yeah, of the sci-fi right. guy sci -fi, between yeah. us. Yeah. And uh, what we see is something very Wellsian with Jack London here. He's predicting the future. He's like a prophet in yeah. some ways. I believe, uh, I believe if, if memory serves me correctly, he, he, you know, I guess kind of predicted that Hawaii would get attacked. He said yeah, that right. Hawaii, yeah. he would said that, he said that Hawaii would get attacked on by December 4th, 1912 by like Germans, Germans or yeah, yeah. Initiating, yeah, yeah, yeah. Initiating not a too war. Far off. Yeah. Not, not too far off. Yeah. Um, not too far off. Yeah, I it's mean. A spook, it's like he's got access to some kind of spooky blueprint. Well, I mean, he, he read H.G. Wells and actually he probably, there's a little bit of uh, <clears throat> when the sleeper wakes in this novel in the in the Iron Heel, the sleeper wakes involves this huge struggle between these kind of mysterious entities, this massive kind of dominating uh, brutal power called the White Council, and then all oh. of these uh, the the rest of these um, people who are banded together in rebellion, and it's you know this guy sleeps what two hundred years into the future from around 19, 1897, right? That's when it's set. A guy falls asleep and he's, he wakes up um, basically in the, in the you know, 200, actually 203 years later um, in, in the uh, 22nd century. So Wells um, influenced uh, uh, London the way, you know, he was influencing many people in the 1890s and early 20th century. Um, but there's also, of course, um, Bellamy's, Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, which was a utopian novel from 1888, which was addressing the problem of massive inequality and labor conflicts from the 1880s. Um, and this, his novel, Looking Backwards, uh, projects someone who sleeps into the future and looks back and sees the country, the U.S., evolving into a benign socialistic republic with all of the rich people agreeing to change their ways. So it's a sort of idealistic vision of the future that um, uh, London purposefully, uh, you know, denied in his book because he thought there was going to be definitely class war, class conflict. He was much more of a Marxian uh, than Bellamy. Bellamy was a kind of middle-class idealist who was still very influential. There were all kinds of Bellamy clubs, and actually the, uh, the, the People's Party, the Populist Party of the 1890s really began, emerged out of a lot of Bellamy's ideas about um, progressive taxation and 
you know, public ownership of utilities and all these, you know, wildly liberal ideas at the time. Um, so, so Bellamy, uh, I mean, everyone was reading Looking Backwards and, um, you know, published in 1888. So London definitely knew that book well, and he knew H.G. Wells. So he was working in a, in a genre, you know, the science fiction of sleepers waking up in the future and seeing either a, a vision of positive change or looking back on what happened in the past, which is, you know, London's book. You know, this book takes place between... 1912 and, and 1932. Most of it is in around 1912-1913. Of course, it was published in 1908, so London is projecting a few years of he ahead into the future to um, to imagine uh, what what's going to happen, you know, imminently in the U.S. Yeah, I I was doing I was poking around and doing a little bit of research earlier today, and I saw that. Uh, Orwell thought very highly of him, like you mentioned. Do yeah. we know if, uh, <laughs> in, if if Huxley or or any of the other dystopian writers were were interested in his work? Well, I think it's mainly Orwell. The idea of this massively oppressive um, collective of of wealthy people. I mean, of course, 1984. Uh, you know, Big Brother. It's not. It's not as though they're particularly wealthy, you know, the the state, but it definitely has this brutality in in its approach to governing that we that London conveys in the book. I mean, we have some a lot of violence described. We don't. It's not really intricately detailed. We don't have you know ghastly scenes of bloodshed, and I mean, we see scenes of fighting and people being killed, but um, it's not really that detailed in its representation. But I think the image, you know, when O'Brien in 1984 says, you know, tells Winston Smith that, you know, our power over people is like a, a you know, think of a, a, a boot stamping in someone's face perpetually, something like that, he says. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think the, I think he sort of got that idea from the idea of the iron heel, meaning, uh, a foot that stamps on you or stamps on your face, um, stamping you down, keeping you down forever. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always an intriguing irony. I mean, I'm not, I'm an apolitical person, but, you know, I can see the, can see the real concern against fascism, but to be an advocate of uh, socialistic Marxism or something like that, I mean... I guess that requires tremendous faith that that will never yeah. that apparatus will never turn against you, and that yeah. what was once something that uh, uh, you know really benefited you became that iron yeah. heel as well. Yeah, uh, I'm well, curious why London, London eventually a, London eventually quit the Socialist Party and uh, before he died in 1916, he thought that they weren't active enough, but. You know, I mean, people, we easily forget that the Socialist Party in the U.S. was growing enormously at the beginning of the 20th century because of the incredibly oppressive conditions of, of, of people in uh, working class sure. Uh, sure. vocations. Uh, and, you know, the fact that you had child labor all over the place, you still had 
people working in factories and mills 12 hours a day. You know, you have this Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of 1911 in New York where, what, 100, over 100 women were burned because of lack of safety protocols. Um, you had all kinds of labor disputes in the 80, 1880s, 90s. Um, you know, in 1905, uh, the governor of uh, Idaho, or Montana, was blown up um, because there was a lot of friction between the miners, Western miners, and the government. And so somebody dyna wait, wait, dynamited. Wait, wait, what, ha what happened? A governor the governor got dynamited? Of, of Montana was <laughs> blown up by dynamite. And they immediately arrested the three leaders of the Western Federation of Miners without any evidence that they were involved. I mean, they just assumed they must be guilty. So they were arrested and brought back to Montana, uh, you know, basically kidnapped. Um, and, uh, you know, and then event and they were tried and convicted, and then eventually, it turns out, the, the, the guy who blew up, who did the actual uh, dynamiting, was only loosely connected with the mining uh, union. He was, he was just kind of a lone wolf. Um, and so London was very much aware of that, and he also was very much aware of the Haymarket tragedy of 1886, where uh, when, during a march of labor rights, a, someone threw a bomb that killed several policemen, and they convicted uh, several of the labor leaders without any tangible evidence uh, of their responsibility. Uh, you know, it's considered the Haymarket tragedy, scandal, whatever. It made huge, huge impact on Americans in the later 1880s um, about the labor problems, you know, where there was such a uh, polarization between labor and capital, you know, constant strikes had the Homestead Steel Mill strike in 19, 1892, the Carnegie Mill that, you know, we had Pinkerton uh, cops shooting uh, strikers. Anyway, very bloody chapter of American history we don't really know that much about. Most people don't know much about. London was very much aware of it, and he was, he totally sympathized with the working class because that's where he came from. I mean, he grew up as a boy, he he sold newspapers. He worked in a in a uh, cleaning uh, facility, you know, where they washed, laund they did laundry, and you know, he spent hours and hours doing that. He worked in a jute mill. He worked as an oyster pirate in the Bay of San Francisco. He went seven, at the age of what seventeen. He went out as a cabin boy or deckhand on a um, a sealing expedition to Japan and back. Uh, and then he went up to the Klondike to look for gold um, in, uh, at the age of 21 with his, uh, with his uh, family relation. So definitely a man of the working class who very much knew the exploitation of labor at the time when you had just you know, almost no laws protecting workers in terms of you know, injury, in terms of, you know, child labor. Uh, all these laws uh, came in uh, in the 20, early 20th century, and even during the New Deal, you know, to 
protect Well, this workers. prompts the question. Uh, I have to... He, a man of such diverse uh, life experience, yeah. I'm curious how he developed such an elegant style. It's... I don't know how I would describe how he writes, but it's... It's... It's effortless. It's like he's not really trying, but it's still it's still well, great. I have he's incredibly really well read. Yeah, I mean, he was just he has a very sort of lucid, sincere style that yeah. um, uh, you know it's eloquent, but it's also very hard hitting, polemical when he needs it to be. So he was massively well read. I mean, he was reading as a teenager. You know, he did one semester at Berkeley, but he had to drop out because he uh, couldn't afford it. But he he just loaded up on books for for his throughout his whole life. I mean, he uh, he he knew all the important thinkers of the time. He was very influenced by Nietzsche, by Darwin, by um, Huxley, Thomas Henry Huxley. He now, dropped, I think he named I think he name dropped Spencer in this book. Yeah, Spencer. I, yeah, I, Herbert I, Spencer, who was the big, uh, very popular sort of Darwinian interpreter, who's responsible for what we call social Darwinism. You know, survival of the fittest was his phrase, which Darwin eventually picked up and used. But um, so Herbert Spencer's uh, London eventually got over his ideas because in the beginning. London, you know, was a powerfully strong young man who thought he could conquer the world. And so he thought, you know, he embraced Spencer's ideas like the best people deserve whatever they can get, you know. The successful people, I mean, Spencer was used to justify the massive wealth of the uh, plutocrats of the later 19th century. But London eventually, when he discovered you know, real poverty all over the world. I mean, he went to London, wrote a book about poverty in London called People of the Abyss, a very interesting and moving book. That's when he realized that Herbert Spencer's social Darwinism was bullshit because, <coughs> you know, people have bad luck and they get sick or they... Oh, yeah. Or, and get, then... Get, uh, sucked, get sucked into a machine, get their arm yeah, ripped off. Yeah, get their arm ripped off like the guy Jackson in the book. Yeah, so just because you think you're on top of the world today and you deserve everything you can make. If tomorrow you get, you know, run over and you can't go back to your job, what happens then? You Basically, you beg on the streets the rest of your life or do you have some kind of mechanism to support you until you can recover or maybe do something else? So, you know, this, this really ruthless Darwinian world of late 19th century capitalism was was really hurting a lot of people, you know. The the wealthy people, of course, flaunted their wealth, and it was popularized in all the press and newspapers and whatever, but uh, not so hidden away in the cities and rural areas were many, many Americans who were poor and suffering and even unable to feed themselves. So... He knew that world, and, and he, he wrote about it in, in books like People of the Abyss and The Iron Heel and The Road, which was about uh, a, a nonfiction book about his trip in 1893-94 with so-called Coxey's Army of the Unemployed, who went across the country to go to Washington. They marched across the country uh, to you know demand jobs because they 
couldn't take care of themselves. And London was part of that army, and he got arrested in uh, around Buffalo and spent a month in jail. Uh, and he had the humiliation of, you know, being thrown into jail for... Not, not, the only offense was that he had... He was a... Um, had no... Uh, couldn't declare a place where he lived, you know. He was basically homeless, and so they put him in jail for a month. And a penitentiary, actually. <clears throat> so that's where he got the experience of the uh, Star Rover, actually, when he's, you know, putting on the... Right. The character there is putting on the straitjacket. Yeah. He knew he was he was a prison reformer from that experience. That was a wild book. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, I think we've touched on the the general the general narrative, but we probably should feed the audience a little bit more about uh, what the story, the story is, is about. about. Yeah. 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 So. The book pretends to be the a manuscript, a, a discovered manuscript, that's presented by a guy named Anthony Meredith, <coughs> right? In the year twenty seven hundred, saying it's a man's name is, yeah, <laughs> Anthony Meredith, yeah, but not to be confused with with a, with Avis, Avis, yeah. So uh, Meredith is, he is publishing the story with his footnotes to explain terms and ideas from the early 20th century that he thinks his readers wouldn't understand. So he's interpreting for the audience of the future the world of that's described in this manuscript by Avis Everhart and uh, about her life with her husband, Ernest. Or first it's her fiancé, then... then uh, later her husband, and I, I actually, I was reading that Ernest Everhard was actually a co the name of a cousin of, of London's that he met in, oh. um, in Michigan, um, so he took the name from someone who was, you know, his own family. Of course, Ernest Everhard is sort of a projection of, of London himself, and of course, Avis would, that, that would make Avis charming and his second wife. So anyway, the, the, the novel pretends to be a discovered manuscript that was written by Avis Everhart about the experience, her experience getting to know this guy, Ernest, and marrying him, and then experiencing, learning about Ernest's view of contemporary America and why he is a socialist, and educating her about the, the sufferings of the poor and the oppressed in the San Francisco area at the time, which is where it take, you know takes place largely. So it it has two time frames. You know the the this frame of the future, <clears throat> which is you know hundreds of years, seven hundred years in the future, which is kind of weird to make it that far. I mean, I can understand one or two hundred years, but seven hundred years—that's that's a huge leap. <laughs> um, right. But. The uh, so the story is mainly about the struggles of Avis and Ernest to um, survive in an increasingly menacing world of the the plutocratic oligarchs and their control, their eventual control of the government because they pretty much take over in about 1912, and they. Ernest and uh, Avis take part in an uprising in Chicago 
a while later, which fails, it's crushed by the Iron Heel, and uh, they spend time in prison, and uh, they, um, you know, the, the end of the book is, is they've escaped, and they don't know what the future is going to bring, but um, it kind of breaks off. Supposedly in 1932, it's not really... The, the time frame gets a little hazy after a while, you know, after you <coughs> start the novel, uh, start the, the sequence, which, you know, clearly begins about 1912. So the book is sort of educating the reader about why Ernest is a socialist and how the oppressive rich people of the time as can assume control of not only industry but also the media government and they kind of they corrupt the working class by favoring some unions eventually and buying them off and then to be able to crush other workers um, so if all of this sounds very outlandish um, <laughs> it is, uh, it's kind of sobering to think that, you know, there are a lot of wealthy people in America today who would like nothing more than to, you know, assume control of, of the government. In fact, the, you know, the, if you read some books of Jane Meyer, you know, called a book called Dark Money, or I just read a book of Nancy McLean called <clears throat> Democracy in Chains about the idea of, you know, billionaires and millionaires, you know, basically whittling away, getting rid of all the laws that have been passed to protect labor, to protect women, to protect minorities, <clears throat> and just kind of unleashing the power of capitalism um, without any kind of uh, mitigating factor to, to lessen its, what it does to those who don't benefit from it. So, you know, you could look around today and, you know, dig up things in the library that would sort of alert you to some trends that are ominously suggestive of this book. Well, I think it raises an interesting question. If people can't be bought, are there other ways for get, bending people's wills? Uh, like you know? what? <laughs> if they can't be bought? Well, well, you know, not everybody's driven by money. Uh, well, yeah, I, I agree. But See, everyone, has, everyone has to live, you know, you need money to be right. able to survive. Right, I'm just saying that there's possible other ways to subvert. Yeah. But that's, a, that's another subject. And it's not just, you know... Well, yeah. the thing is, in this book, you know, Ernest Everhart tries to work within the system. I mean, he gets elected to Congress along with... Right a bunch of other socialists, right? but the, the uh, oligarchs uh, don't like that. The Iron Heel sets him up, and when he's giving a fiery speech in Congress with Avis in the audience, uh, a saboteur throws a bomb uh, for which uh, Ernest is deemed to be responsible. So... That's the thing about the, the, the Iron Heel is they, they're very good at, um, you know, agents provocateurs, you know, creating false flag 
uh, kinds of situations where they can deny their responsibility or provoke <clears throat> some kind of violent response without being um, directly um, known to be doing that. So it raises an interesting question. If, if there were false flags going on, like how would we even know? Yeah. Like how, well, how would we determine which, you know, who's doing what if the, if the origins are mysterious? Yeah. Well, it takes a lot of diligent research, you know? Should, yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, it takes time and, and uh, information, you know? I mean, uh, like today, just I mean, with Ukraine, right, the Russians <clears throat> were creating all kinds of attempts to create provocation by setting things up, and the U.S. was, you know, exposing what some of their provocations would be, you know, creating false false narratives about how the war began, <clears throat> rather than direct invasion, which is what they did, you know. So, massively powerful entities often are, are very good at creating, um, you know, false flag operations, um, propaganda, all that kind of thing. Yeah. In the book, you know, well, it's they, they, the, the, the oligarchs contain the press. You know, the press can't publish, for instance, everything that, uh, you know, the, this, this guy Jackson has his arm pulled off at his mill. Right. And he can't, uh, he can't win his case because the oligarchs have, um, uh, you know, they have a very good lawyer and they talk to the foreman of the mill saying, you know, what happened? Of course, this guy was to blame for his own accident. Uh, so, and they, uh, and when Avis later on tries to call attention to um, this, you know, she can't get people to pay attention to her. And then <clears throat> when um, this guy, Bishop Morehouse, who's a Christian, Bishop, who kind of sees the light because of Ernest's educational efforts, he he's completely, you know, he's put into a madhouse because they don't right. want to listen to him. And everything he says about the struggles of the poor, they, they don't publish it because <clears throat> the journalists are afraid. They, they can't really publish the truth, which is a terrible yeah, what's, thing. What's the... What's the uh, the biblical scripture about the prophet being hated in his hometown? Yeah, yeah. What what uh, Mark six four? Yeah. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but is in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Yeah, and I think that's true with the bishop. Well, the, you know what he's trying to say is is too threatening for the oligarchs because. Right. They don't want to pay attention to the safety of their workers because they make more money by ignoring it. They don't. They don't want to improve conditions because they're making too much money as is. Did it's, London receive any pushback for publishing stuff like this? I mean, well, he... it's interesting. He the book was not well reviewed, but I mean, he he sold fifty thousand copies of it, which is pretty good. Yeah. But he was a he was a very popular author. I, I, just, I think people really weren't fully aware of what he was doing in the book. Um, I think uh, I think people, you know, it is a kind of a clunky narrative in terms of its its um, its 
you know, construction. The shifting perspective. Shifting yeah, perspective. Yeah. There's this vagueness about some of the descriptions, a lot of concentrated history. So, you know, it's not a first-rate book like 1984, but it, it's, a, it's an interesting book, and it's got some really interesting, vivid moments. And, one, you know, it's, it's sort of... Uh, uh, I was reading, and the criticism is it was kind of like, a, uh, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin wake-up call for people about industrial misery, you know. I mean, there have been a lot of these books. You know, London... <coughs> was really instrumental in helping Upton Sinclair publish his uh, book, The Jungle, in 1906, you know, and they were friends. Um, so, um, you know, it was, it was part of a movement to dramatize, really, the misery of the working class um, that uh, he, and, he and Upton Sinclair were, were doing at this time. And, of course, the, the, the Iron Heel was published in... Uh, 1908, written in 1906. <clears throat> so it sold, and I, you know, it just it didn't get good press. I think mainly because it wasn't entertaining enough. Um, I found it. <laughs> I found it pretty entertaining. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what it didn't compare to his other writings, which were more accessible. You know, like White yeah. Fang. White Fang is a wonderful book. You know, it's right there. Very enthralling story, great narrative, thrilling. Um, well, I'm gonna have to read everything that Jack London has done because if I can, <laughs> if 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 the if the jacket or the Star Rover yeah. and and the Iron Heel are considered like lesser kind of, lesser books, yeah, yeah, slapped on works. I can't imagine what his other stuff is yeah. like. Like, it, it well, he's a brilliant short story modern. writer. I think most people think of him as as really best in a short story. So, you know, his South Sea Tales, just amazingly interesting work. His, his Tales of the Klondike, great fiction. Um, and then... I'd come uh, across that When the Sleeper Awakes before. Uh, that, that title was yeah. very intriguing to me. Well, we talked about ta it, right? Didn't we talk about doing it a while ago? Uh, I may have suggested it because I came across it doing some research, or yeah. I, I can't remember who who said. Oh, I think maybe I sent it to you. You had been talking about London, yeah. and then I came across that, and I was like, yeah. "Hey, can we do this one?" And you're like, "Eh, let's do these others." But yeah, I'd be down for checking that one out. Um, it's very curious. Uh, Jack London, he, he died on November twenty second. It's a very interesting day yeah. in the in a, in literary and political history. I mean, I, I I know you know what happened on that day. Uh, a lot of things happened on that day. Was, uh, was that Kennedy's assassination? Yeah, it was the day yeah. of the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. and 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 Aldous Huxley died the same day uh -huh. as the Kennedy assassination. So, uh, I think uh, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, C.S. Lewis. Uh, um, so yeah, 1916, it's terrible because he died at the age of 40. Uh, you know, he was in uh, prime condition until the year or two before. What happened was when he went on his South Sea voyage, 1907, you know, he, bu he built this boat called the Snark and sailed off with Charmian and, and a small crew because he wanted to go around the world. We ended up only in the Pacific. He went to Hawaii, spent time there. He went to the uh, other parts, he went to Tahiti, Solomon Islands, but he got um, ill, very ill, uh, something called yaws, 
which is huh. a spirochete-like syphilis, except it's not a venereal disease. But it causes these huge rashes on your skin. And he treated himself with these ointments that had mercury in them. So oh basically, when you get mercury in your body, it doesn't go away. So it ended up in his kidneys. So he had basically, in 1916, his, his kidneys just started breaking down. And he, um, you know, he, did, he died of like a combination of stroke and kidney failure and heart attack. Um, because of this mercury in his system that was, you know, terrible. And he didn't know about it. He didn't know the consequences of it. So many great men have been done in by the mercury. Yeah. Uh, how, how many astronomers and men of science and, I guess, writers and Melville's have brother, in? Melville's uh, older brother, Gansevoort, probably died of mercury poisoning. That's, that's from, incredible. Uh, he had a, high, a tanning business where they used mercury in the tanning process. So anyway, well, London could have written, you know, many more books. He was very prolific, um, but he died, uh, you know, 1916. It's wild. I was going to mention Anthony Burgess also died on November 22nd, as far as writers okay. go. Well, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. Uh, why did he name his ship the Snark? It's the Snark is from Lewis Carroll. Uh, I was going to uh, say, one of the, one of the it's Alan, a reference. Yeah. Uh, I forget which, it's not, down the, Through the Looking Glass, I think, something like that, anyway. There's a, there's like a story, I believe, in Through the Looking or Glass chasing called Hunting the Snark. Hunting the Snark. Hunting, of the, yeah, s- hunting right. the Snark. Yeah. Was he particularly fond of Lewis Carroll? Is there a connection there? I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I just think it was common knowledge, you know, Carroll's Alice books were, uh, but he, he read everything, so he knew, he knew, uh, knew Carroll, yeah. I'm going to make a little note of that. Um, nice. So, so if he, how, you know, so London's pretty critical of American democracy. What did he want to see instead? Well, he was a committed socialist. And it's interesting, you know, of course, the socialism of his era had yeah, never been. What is that? What it is that never, mean? it pretty much was a lot of what we have today, which is, you know, uh, public ownership of utilities, old age pensions, free public education, um, uh, you know, retirement funds, you know, things that, that really mitigated the, the horrors of, of, uh, of the era, you know, when everything, uh, you know, you were pretty much on your own. I mean, there was public education, but uh, if you went to college, you had to pay a fair amount of money at the time. And uh, so pretty much, you know, socialism was kind of what we got with the New Deal. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, complete. I mean, in the book, it makes it sound like it's hardcore Marxism, you know, uh, pro working class ownership of the means of production. But, in fact, the socialism that was talked about was more about, you know, making life livable for everyone. Um, so, you know, it was a certain naivete because this was before the Russian Revolution. We had no idea what it was like to live under a socialist government with one party system. Um, and there, uh, there was a certain naivete about it, but... It was very popular with middle-class reformers. I mean, Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward is pretty much is based on a vision of socialism for the future. 
Um, I think it was the only, it was just an alternative to this horrible, massive concentration of wealth at the top, you know, with no income tax uh, at the time, and uh, just these massive fortunes that uh, these these people, you know, they, they didn't need. I mean, they just built houses and bought art and uh, wasted money on extravagant, you know, yachts, just like the Russian oligarchs or, you know, Jeff Bezos or... <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, what do you think Jack London would say about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos trying to colonize yeah. space? What do you think he would say about that? I think he would think of them as, as sort of part of the Iron Heel, you know? Yeah. I mean, they, underneath it all, I mean, look, Jeff Bezos, they, they just investigated Amazon warehouses where, you know, people have repetitive motions and, and they get, you know... Uh, they get muscle, you know, physical uh, disabilities from from repetitive work. Uh, they, uh, you know, they work long hours. Um, I mean, it's, I don't think it's much fun to work in an Amazon warehouse, personally. Uh, Elon Musk, I don't know so much. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like to, to work in a Tesla factory. I mean, it's probably all robots doing the work. Um, but I think he'd have the same attitude. I mean, these these people aren't, you know, as mean as a Rockefeller or, or, uh, uh, or a, um, some of these other, you know, super wealthy people. Um, you know, Morgan and... Uh, I'm thinking of the, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, the, uh, the Pittsburgh banker the melons, you know. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're not as mean and notorious, but, you know, they still, their their opinions, and I mean, their their actions still cause difficulties for people, and they, and they, you know, if you work your whole life for Amazon, it's not, you're not going to, you know, be rich at the end of it, I can tell you that. Um, so anyway, that's why things are, are very similar today. You know, we have lots of billionaires out there who have a lot of power, political power. They can buy their own candidate and run them. You know, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Fortunately, they have a fair amount of independence in what they write. But I don't think right. they can say much and many bad things about Amazon. Like, that's for sure. <laughs> That would be uh, quite the bind for the yeah. the editor. I yeah. don't know if that editor would last very long. Yeah. So. Uh, well, we we touched on this a little bit. Uh, how, you know, he got some. He got some things right about the development of of fascism. Yeah, uh, I believe. Not just in Europe, but in other places, wasn't there? Um, uh, wasn't there a fascist that was a Linde that kind of like was on Allende, the cover yeah, of the yeah. book? Allende, yeah, yeah. He was on. He was on the cover of the book. Yeah, yeah. What? Allende in uh, in Chile in uh, nineteen seventy three, overthrown by the CIA. Pinochet came to power. <clears throat> you know, of course, the CIA helped the military with their coup, um, but it was uh, pretty ruthless. And Allende, you know, he. It's interesting because most people don't know that he completely restructured restructured the Chilean economy by bringing in 
a lot of free market people from the U.S., you know, Milton Friedman's ideas about, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the rights of plutocracy and um, the very conservative economic ideas and kind of screwed up their Social Security program, which they're still recovering from kind of made a huge transfer of wealth to the, uh, to the upper classes with Pinochet. And Pinochet, of course, himself got you know, pretty wealthy, too. So uh, that situation, um, you know, suggestive of what London was describing. But, you know, fascism began, what, in the 20s in Italy, not long after this book was published. And it involved a sort of nationalistic fervor and capitalistic collaboration with government and the use of violence uh, with unapologetically and the control of the press. So the idea of this sort of capitalistic um, enforcement of, of the power to benefit only the few uh, you know, came into uh, existence you know, not what about about fifteen years after London published this book, you know, after World War One, Italy, and then eventually in Germany, and then Spain. <clears throat> so he, uh, you know, he did not live to see fascism, but he sort of projected it for the future. Right. Well, it's definitely a seer of sorts. Yeah. I guess. I, I, you don't hear that I, with London. I guess it's like Wells who kind of always sucks up the profit status. But yeah, London well, he seems was, to have... He was a great reformer, too. I mean, everything he did was... He was kind of a benefactor for humanity. I mean, he had this beautiful ranch in uh, Glen Ellen and Sonoma, north of uh, San Francisco, and he had these very sort of well-developed agricultural ideas about breeding and humane treatment of animals and avoiding the exhaustion of the soil that happened in some of these other parts of the, of the uh, you know, Central Valley of California where you had, you know, this, uh, this wheat baron at the time who was, you know, was just would use up these lands and, and, and would not rotate his crops and everything. So he's a great agricultural reformer, you know, he's anti-imperialist, he learned about the oppressions of, um, you know, colonialism when he sailed around the Pacific and talked to all these native peoples and what happened when the French or the English or the Americans came in and took over. <clears throat> and, you know, he was a critic of industrialism in the U.S. So a generally in a wonderfully inventive and productive friend of humanity, you know, and great writer. Is, is, is this your favorite of, of London's work, or how... No, where did, I, what's, your, what's your list? My what's ranking? Your, what's, your, yeah, well, what's your top three or five? <laughs> well, London? I love his South Sea Tales, yeah. because it kind of reminds me of Melville's writing yeah, in that I, area. Well, I figured, yeah, I figured that much. And, yeah. uh... Uh, I love his nonfiction, other nonfiction books. The People of the Abyss is really interesting. You could compare it to uh, Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London. 
It's okay. about the East End in, uh, in, in England in the beginning of the 20th century and the, the massive poverty there. Sure. Also, the John Barleycorn, which is an autobiographical, autobiographical story about London and his drinking. Uh, but it's really just a sort of meditative view of life in general. Uh, I mean, it's not, you know, he did not have a, I mean, he probably drank a lot, but he was not seriously alcoholic. Um, also, The Road, which is about his trip with Coxey's army. In eighteen ninety three ninety four, that's a that's a wonderful book. So I love his nonfiction. Like yeah, it sounds like you're a real London head. Sounds like you've read pretty much everything yeah. he's done. Did well, you go through? A, did you go through a big? I, phase I went through a phase, but he, believe me, he's written a lot more than you realize. I mean, he wrote about twenty know. No, twenty novels and about fifty short stories, and uh, about three he or four, four, four collections. But the ages of the ages of about twenty two and forty. He was very. How'd he do it? How'd he do well, it? Well, he borrowed plots. Actually, he bought plots from Sinclair Lewis. Oh, uh, that's the thing I was going to ask you about. <laughs> Apparently, there's some controversy about Chapter Seven. Yeah, right. Uh, he and the, he. What, um, what, I didn't dig into. He it. What's the deal with that? A guy named Frank Harris wrote an essay about a, a London, the Bishop of Canterbury, who came to New York, and talked, looked at urban poverty in New York, and then said. Poverty in London is much worse than it is in New York. And London read this essay, and he absorbed it, and he used some of the same ideas when he talked about Bishop Morehouse giving a speech about poverty. Was it just um, ideas, or did he, like, lift it was the just entire I, thing? I think it was ideas, and I haven't checked the language. I can't I, I don't think he sat down and copied it. I think he'd read it as an article and then remembered it and, you know, reproduced it, maybe using the same phrases, which happens if you read a lot and then you forget where you found, where you know something from, you know, and then you include it sure. somewhere. So sure. I don't think he was intentionally sitting down to crib. He had, there's no reason he, he would do that, you know, just be a stupid, stupid uh, exercise in plagiarism. So... Um, but Frank Harris, the guy who, whose work was so-called borrowed, <clears throat> got pretty angry and he demanded, you know, the royalties for well, like one fiftieth of the book, which is what he calculated the passages amounted to, in in the overall word count. So, yeah, it's not. I mean, London was he was writing very rapidly and very productive. He he had an expensive life to keep up, you know, he, he he had a nice ranch, he had to take care of his, you know, he had a wife, he also had a, a divorced wife and two daughters from that marriage that he had to support, he had other family members, his mother, Flora Wellman, he had to support, he had stepsisters, he had to support, so he, I don't blame him for trying to make money as a writer because a lot of people depended on him. No, I don't have a problem with it either. Well, we've gone for about an hour. We've yeah. danced around a lot of different questions. Do you feel like we exhaustively covered everything that you wanted to talk about today? I think we really have uh, hit most of the major points, yeah. just I just can't emphasize enough the interesting parallels between, you know, if you dig, dig around today, the, the sort of incipient power of these 
you know, massively wealthy people in America, you know, these billionaires, and the political power they're amassing and, and the power that they want, that <clears throat> I think London really was onto something in his era that also uh, is relevant for, for us, you know, particularly in this, in this era. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of uncanny parallels uh, going, you know, yeah. for the past hundred years and into the future. Yeah. So, I I am recommending it to people. I recommend it to this entire audience and and the jacket. Uh, as the I Star Rover. Earlier. The Star Rover. Well, you, think, you know, it ha- I, it's I, also called the jacket sometimes. I it's guess. also yeah. it's also called the jacket. This was yeah. actually that was kind of a. A dilemma for me when I was trying to get a hold of a copy of it, yeah, is that it's got two names. It's yeah. the uh, it's the jacket in England, but it's the Star, Star Rover, Rover in yeah, America. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, so it's known. So, because I was so confused when I would do searches for it for the Star Rover, the jacket would come up, and I had to have someone explain to me that they were the same book, yeah. just known for some reason, known by different names. Yeah. I guess it has something to do with the publisher or yeah. how they were distributed in England. It happens sometimes. You know, Moby Dick yeah. was published as the whale in England. Oh, you know, really? Moby Dick here, yeah. We just know it as Moby Dick because we don't use right. the English title. Right. So, yeah. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. All right, well, okay. I am to- I'm, I'm up for doing more, yeah. Jacqueline. Yeah, so I'll if have some, other, some Suggestions the sleeper coming. awakes. The sleeper awakes would be, a, I would be of intrigue. But any of the ones that you listed yeah. uh, would be interesting, and we can talk a little bit about that off air okay. or through email or something like that. So I want to thank All you, right. Dr. Cook, for joining us today, and thank you everybody for listening. Okay. All right.